wonderful. Thanks, Isaac, for going through that longer reading, but I wanted us to have the whole text in front of us. Um, If you've got your Bibles open on that page, please do keep them open, and let's pray as we begin. Lord, by the power and the presence of your Spirit, speak to us through your written word. Draw us closer to your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that all of us here, whether we've known you our whole lives and feel close to you today, whether today you feel far off, or whether, if we're honest, we're not sure you exist at all, that we will be closer to you because of the time we spend under your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been given the title, Opposition from Within, which, when you're a visiting preacher in a parish, is always a slightly loaded term. (laughs) Uh, But we're going to go and continue, hopefully. I'm I'm assuming you've been doing a series on Nehemiah. And I'm assuming last week you had the jeering people about the wall, picking holes in their shoddy building work, the impossibility. And today we turn and we look at some of the other dynamics that were going on in this project. There's a really interesting thing about the whole book of Nehemiah. Have you noticed that God's not in it that much. Sounds heretical to say that, doesn't it? But when you read it through, you don't have any of these moments that there's a a flash of light and an amazing miracle. You don't have these moments when Nehemiah says, well, God told me, kind of like the prophet Isaiah or Elijah. Instead, what you have is Nehemiah, who has been serving this king while the people of Israel have been carried off into exile. And he hears that his home city still lies in ruins. And it's a burden on his heart to rebuild the walls of his city. And he appeals to God at various points, like we saw in this passage today. But on one level, you've got this very natural impulse, this very ordinary impulse. And yet, by the grace of God, this ordinary impulse is something that is extraordinary that we read about it now and we see it as part of the Lord working his purposes out through his people and preparing them for the saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you go through this fallow period and you're not experiencing some amazing miracle, some blinding flash of spiritual epiphany that leaves you lost in wonder, love and praise every time you open your Bible, don't worry. Congratulations for being normal. The Lord works in the ordinary. He works in the normal and by his grace he takes it and he weaves it into something extraordinary uh, that he brings glory to his name and through which in our human frailty we see his kingdom come. The temptation with texts like this in Nehemiah, there's two temptations I think. The first is that for those of us who have been in church a while, who have heard this story many times, who are really familiar with it, we just skate over it and we almost read it like the children's Bible story version. And in doing so, we make some assumptions and we fill in some gaps and sometimes we don't actually take the time to really dig into the text. My spiritual homework for you this week is to sit down and read the book of Nehemiah from start to finish, it's not that long, and read it as if you've never read it before. Read it as if you don't know the story. The second temptation we have is, um, is one for preachers, actually. 
which is that it's a temptation to shoehorn a really easy application or moral into a story like this. And so we come up with things like, uh, for example, with this text, you could say, be like Nehemiah, don't be like those other officials. That, that's, our, that's our take home for today. Or we possibly say, and we need to put some ton of pastoral nuance around this one, uh, when we say, even if, or especially when you're stepping out in faith in obedience to the Lord, there will be difficulties to overcome, and people will oppose what the will of God clearly is. Now, you possibly can see the danger points of that, can't you? Because opposition is not the same as disagreement. Opposition is not the same as complexity. Opposition is not the same as pointing out that there's an area of need. And all of those points actually are true. But today I'd like us, if you don't mind, um, to model a different way of approaching these passages that hopefully will help you in your own times of personal devotion and Bible study. And so we're going to go through this passage and we're going to keep three questions in mind. The first is what is really going on, not what we assume is going on. The second is what does this tell us about the nature of God? And the third is what do we see in the mirror held up to human nature here? So what's going on? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? Artaxerxes has given consent and sent Nehemiah back to build the walls of Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the walls because uh, Jerusalem was sacked. You can read about this uh, towards the ends of the books of Chronicles. And it was sacked and the people were carried off into exile in Babylon. And the root cause of this was the rise of the Babylonian Empire on a human level. But it is made clear in the pages of Scripture that the Lord permitted this to happen because of the sin and idolatry of the people of Israel. They're carried off into exile, where many of them are rooted, many of them were born, many of them were grown up. You've got at this stage, Nehemiah was probably not carried off into exile, he was born in exile. And he's actually carved a, a niche for himself, serving in the court of the Babylonian king. And the project at this stage, by the time we get to chapter 5, is nearing completion. We say it's over, I think it's towards the end of chapter 6, they say that it's completion. And they've dealt with some of the machinations and the jeerings of Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshom the Arab, probably names you don't want your children or grandchildren to inherit. And then chapter 5 is where we see that the long-term project, because this is quite a project, and the consequences and the burdens that that has laid upon the everyday people, it's becoming clear. We blink and we miss it. But verse 3, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. This rebuilding is taking place against a backdrop of famine. Now, famine is not a cost-of-living crisis. Famine is not a supply chain crisis. Famine is not we're struggling to heat our homes. Famine in the ancient Near East, where you have a whole society built on subsistence agriculture, that's death. 
sometimes when we read the word famine, we sometimes think of hardship, which in 21st century England is really not the same thing at all. And all of this rebuilding work is going on against the backdrop of abject famine. Small-scale, Middle Eastern subsistence farmers. And we read there's crippling taxation levied by that very king who has sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall on the people. And again, we hear tax, we think of HMRC. By the way, tax return day on Tuesday, everyone, if you need to file it. And and we think of the fines that have been levied very famously this week. But tax back in those days was a very different deal again. And remember, this is tax by an occupying power that has carried your people off into slavery. The people are rebuilding the walls against a difficult backdrop that difficult doesn't seem to even begin to cover it. And so when they say we're mortgaging our fields, we've mortgaged our farms, what does it take someone who is a subsistence farmer to put their field at risk? Because that field is everything that is going to support you and your family. That's the one thing that's keeping you from starvation. They're selling their children into slavery. This isn't because they don't love their children because that's the only option left for them on the table. And it's at that point that they go to Nehemiah to complain. Now, call me a little bit soft, but that's a lot of hardship to endure before you complain. There's a lot of stages you've gone through. Oh, we're a bit tight this month. Oh, I don't know. Gosh, I'm going to have to miss a meal because we're not sure we've got enough for today before you get to selling your children and mortgaging the one thing that keeps you alive. But they've got to that point of desperation and they go and they complain to Nehemiah. If we blink too too fast, sometimes we think that the people that are going to Nehemiah with the complaints are the people opposing the will of God. They're not. They're going with their complaints and saying, this is costing us everything we have, but it is costing them everything they have. And Nehemiah, he hears their complaint and we see his response. The first thing that hits us that is surprising, he didn't know. My goodness, he didn't know. Why didn't he know? Surely he knew there was a famine on. Surely he knew about the crippling taxation. Nehemiah didn't know. That's an interesting question to raise about Nehemiah. He's not perfect is even less perfect as we go on through this. And he holds up a mirror to see clearly what has happened, the extent of the sin of those who are rich to those who are poor. He turns around and he says, we were carried off into slavery. We've been buying our own people back and you've been selling them again into slavery. He holds up a mirror to the nobles and officials and tells them, can you see what you're doing? He tells them clearly, this stops now. And again, in another blink or you miss it moment in verse 10, he admits his part in it. I and my brothers are also lending the people money. Nehemiah has been involved in this too. 
we blink and we miss it. These are the details we get when we read it as if we're reading it for the first time. The enormity of what's going on is hitting them. And he stops it. He puts in a plan of restitution, a plan of compensation, and says, this ends now. And in all of this, what is that mirror to our human nature? My goodness, we see in this text almost the worst side of humanity, don't we? We see the capacity for human beings, for exploitation of the desperate, even when we're engaged in the will of God. Oh, that's difficult, isn't it, to hear? That we can be involved in something that's supposed to be really exciting for the kingdom of God, really historic and significant, and yet we can still not see the damage we're doing. We can see in this a mirror that's held up that is a call to holiness of life that begins with ourselves. The thing that turns the corner here is when Nehemiah responds to that call of holiness and he receives that, not defensively, not going, oh, I didn't know about it, why are you blaming me? But he accepts responsibility. He puts an end to it. He makes amends. He receives that conviction as part of that amendment of life. And we can see that effective repentance means we've got to drop the defensiveness. I don't know about you, but me, I'm only defensive if there's an element of truth in what somebody's saying to me. And the more defensive I get, is the more I don't really want to admit that truth about myself. I think we're all a little bit like that. We can see that in the midst of horrific sin of slavery, of exploitation. There's also potential for great wisdom and great grace. And that's another thing that we sometimes find hard to understand about our human nature because we'd much rather divide things into all good, all bad. We'd much rather have Sambalat Tobiah and Geshem the Arab Buhis and Nehemiah. Yay, Nehemiah! Perfect Nehemiah. Bad Geshem the Arab. Bad nobles, bad officials. We'd much rather divide things like that but we actually hold up the mirror and we realise the mirror of our soul is that this runs right through us. What does this tell us about the nature of God? My goodness, the faithfulness of God to his people, even when they are faithless. The fact that they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in the first place is astounding. And the Lord sees the most vulnerable, the most dispossessed. He sees those who are suffering from the famine. We see the hand of the Lord over history. Nehemiah's actions, as I said, seem like a really human story. It even includes a pagan king. And you have this very human response of Nehemiah not wanting to see his city in ruins. But in this and through this, the Lord's sovereignty reigns. Because, as I said, this is part of the ongoing preparation of the people of God to receive the Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is a great and a holy call, which cannot be disrupted nor forfeited by the sin of the people. Sometimes we think the call of God's like a bit like a scared sparrow that will flutter away at the slightest provocation. Oh, the Lord's braver than that. And this is where we pause and we remember we come before that same God today. The God that doesn't change. That his abundant grace calls us convicts us, forgives us, restores us, 
and sends us to proclaim this in our homes, our community, in our church, in our world. And as we seek the Lord for his direction and will, whether that's a personal level or a corporate level, we lean on this grace. We see this abundant grace of God woven through this as we see the way that the Lord holds over his sovereign hand of history, over this entire episode in the lives of the people of Israel and the way that fits into the story of God's people. And we lean on this grace with our hearts open attentive to the conviction of the Spirit. Those places where the Lord puts his hand on us and says, by my kindness, I'm going to lead you to repentance. And we do this with a commitment to the holiness and the glory of God. And that as we journey through um, this world together, as you journey through this fallow time as a church, and as you look to the various plans that you have for the future, We lean on this God, the same God, the one who began a good work that will carry it through to completion for his glory. Amen. What gift of grace is Jesus my Jesus now.
Shall repeat yet no time, but through Christ. 